0: Hi there, I'm Tiara Vayan, and this is KJZZ's Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. It's the latest stories from the week, designed to catch you up on some highlights from our community. Thanks so much for listening for the week of December 18th, 2023. Barry Jones left Arizona's death row in June after spending decades awaiting execution for violent crimes against a child, which he has always denied. Now in his 60s, Jones is back in Tucson, where a son who believed his father's claims is helping Jones build a new life. Matthew Casey reports.
1: One of the first things some people notice about Barry Jones is his touch of a southern drawl.
2: My mom, uh, about halfway through the trial, she said, Barry, she said, get ready because... Uh you're going to death row. I said, "Wow, well, all right.
1: The trial ended in 1995 after a jury said that Jones abused, sexually assaulted, and killed a four-year-old girl. Per his mother's prediction, Jones spent more than 10,000 days waiting to be executed. Today, Jones is free and on a job site in time to see the sunrise. The crew Jones is part of works for his son, James. He was about seven years old when Jones got a death sentence. Now they build a front patio for an HOA home in Green Valley together.
2: For these, you don't have to even them like this, Dad. Even if you turn the corner and touch the corners, here's fine too. All right. To make that work instead of trying to go straight. All
1: right. Interacting this way is a huge change from decades when they could only communicate by letter. But change has been the theme of Jones's life since he left death row.
2: I scared to death. You know, where am I going to stay? Uh, what am I going to do? Uh...
1: To get out one day had almost always felt hopeless. The convictions were thrown out, but then reinstated by the U.S. Supreme Court. Then evidence showing Jones did not cause the internal injury that killed Rachel Gray finally won out. When Arizona set Jones free, it made big news.
0: After nearly 30 years on death row, a Tucson man is now free.
1: Barry Lee Jones was released after pleading guilty to a lesser crime. Jones took a deal in which he admitted to second-degree murder for having not gotten the child medical care when it was clear she was ill. Time served was the sentence from a Pima County Superior Court judge. Jones says it's a fact that he did not seek treatment.
2: I didn't kill nobody. I didn't save nobody, so I could do that, and I did. It was either that or spend another 10 years on death row fighting and proving my innocence, you know. And it's just 10 years that I can spend with my family.
1: Jones well understands why time is priceless after having spent nearly half of his life on death row. He noticed when a former detective on his case spoke out against his release on local TV. But Jones also has a clear perspective on what he can
2: and cannot control. My anger coming out of prison, my aggravation, wouldn't have done me a bit of good. It would have soured everything that I have right now. You know, so I just, I left all that behind, and I try not to get angry about much of anything.
1: Family made returning to Tucson an obvious choice for Jones, who admits only treating himself to ice cream. It's been hard to look up old friends now that phone books no longer exist. A big reason why he got a smartphone was to make it easier to email friends back in prison.
2: I keep telling my son, you know, I said this is not my world. It just ain't, you know, I mean, it's like... uh, I, I was in suspended animation for 30 years, and then they woke me up, and boom, here I am, you know. And...
1: At first, friends took turns making Jones summer caretaker of their homes. Then he went on a big road trip to the Pacific Northwest. Now, land where Jones lives in a trailer home and a way he earns money have been provided by his son, James. He was so young that he hardly remembers when Jones went to death row.
2: Everything kind of fell in my mom, and then that fell apart, and it's been a life. Now I'm trying to do the right thing. I own my own company now. And...
1: James did prison time, too. Mail over the years, to and from his dad, was fastest when he was held in a facility next to Death Row. Of course, James learned why Jones was sent there.
2: I honestly asked him about it. and He told me he didn't do it, and that's where I left it at. But we were younger, too, so we don't realize the whole facts you know, of everything. But once I got older, that's when I asked him more, and, and I believed him.
1: The men say it now feels like Jones was never gone. Sure, they felt some anxiety in the lead-up to when Jones left death row. Jones says that disappeared when they reunited.
2: Son walks up to him and throws his arms around and says, love you, Dad. Wasn't awkward at all, like we never missed a beat, you know?
1: Jones spent decades clinging to a few memories of James, so the ones they make now mean the most. James says the family grew sort of like the Brady Bunch while his dad was gone. They'll all be together this year for the holidays. Matthew Casey, KJZZ News, reporting from Green Valley.
0: In business news. Next year's presidential election is shaping up to be a closely contested race, and many organizations have already launched Get Out the Vote campaigns. That includes the AAPI Civic Engagement Fund, which advocates for Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. They're funding artists through a fellowship to create work that connects with potential voters about the issues their community faces. And as Kirsten Dorman reports, they've tapped two Arizona artists to help underscore the urgency.
3: AAPI Engagement Fund Executive Director, Unsuk Lee says now more than ever, there's a challenge to overcome political burnout. It comes
0: at a time when it's arguable that there's a lot of potential disengagement and disappointment.
3: So the goal is to motivate people to vote, especially in a dynamic and politically important state like Arizona.
0: America is best functioning when we have a healthy multiracial democracy. And that is what we are hoping to promote.
3: And Lee says Asian American Pacific Islanders are an important component of that. My
4: hope is that it just really helps enshrine in people the belief and the feeling that Voting matters.
3: That's GB Tran, an Arizona-based cartoonist and fellowship recipient.
4: That no matter what they're hearing or what they're seeing and what they're constantly being bombarded by, whether it's media or etc., that it doesn't take away from their belief that their vote actually matters.
3: Tran says there was no question about what form his contribution would take.
4: Comics is my, my language.
3: He's working on a webcomic aimed at first-time voters, many of whom are members of Gen Z.
4: If you feel like, yeah, oh man, it's up to us to fix it, on on one hand, I'm like, whew, thank goodness. <laughs> you know, but on the flip side, I also absolutely empathize with the feeling of like, man, why why do you have to fix up the mess of multiple generations before you.
3: Trent says he's looking forward to seeing how these conversations shape the comic's story.
4: I certainly have some ideas and I have some goals and that I want to accomplish with this, but I also know that with any creative project of the scale, that it's really important to just be able to flow with whatever
5: direction it takes.
3: For his contribution, Safwat Salim is also looking to others.
5: I'm going to set up a voicemail where I'm going to actively ask folks to like, hey, send in your anxieties.
3: It's part of his ongoing project, Anxieties of an Immigrant Father.
5: I'm going to map out my own anxieties as like charts. These are going to be black and white charcoal drawings.
3: Salim says it's all about creating a sense of belonging.
5: So I've lived in Arizona for over two decades, but I feel that I've always struggled to call Arizona my home.
3: He acknowledges that a lot of people in Arizona are from somewhere else, but even somewhere like the laundromat, the first question he often gets is, where are you from?
5: It's an automatic assumption that I'm not from here, even though I'm probably here longer than the person who's asking me that.
3: Lee says it's a relatable feeling. It's
0: the understanding that API Asian Americans Pacific Islanders, regardless of ethnicity, they've also experienced being made invisible and often misunderstood as being, for example, the perpetual foreigner.
3: In response, Salim started making art.
5: As a way to get a better understanding of that and process those feelings of belonging, what it means to belong, especially now. As a parent of a six-year-old.
3: With this version of anxieties of an immigrant father.
5: I just want to create that small moment of belonging where maybe for half a second somebody feels less alone. And he says hopefully they'll get a laugh out of it too. Humor is a very important part of everything that I make.
3: Salim says it pushes back on the expectation of artists of color to focus their work on trauma related to their identity.
5: Some of those anxieties do have to do with politics and it can be considered political. Like, so for example, that my daughter will find my accent embarrassing.
3: Contrasting that with more universal things.
5: Like she won't eat enough vegetables.
3: Salim says more eyes on Arizona politics can be an opportunity for artists like him.
5: We've been here all this time. The work that we're doing is is getting a little bit more attention, which is Interesting that that's what it takes.
3: Tran says he remembers the way his parents sacrificed everything to come to America, and he hopes the project encourages first-time voters, no matter who they are or where they're from.
4: I believe that we as citizens can help form our government at a local level, and then possibly at a national level, and have a say about how our, our country develops and grows and evolves.
3: Kirsten Dorman, KJZZ News. Phoenix.
0: And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In Tribal Natural Resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation, Tribal leaders participated in historic talks on the future of the Colorado River Basin at last week's annual conference of those water users in Nevada. Gabriel Pietrasio reports.
6: The Sovereign to Sovereign Dialogue, a first-of-its-kind panel, included discussions between Bureau of Reclamation Commissioner Camille Tutin and three officials part of the Ten Tribes Partnership, each of whom have secured water rights to the Colorado River. CRIT Chairwoman Amelia Flores.
7: Protection of our river is an exercise of our sovereignty
0: and a sacred
6: duty. Navajo Nation Council Delegate Brenda Jesus, Chair of the Nation's Resources and Development Committee.
0: The Navajo Nation we all know
7: is uniquely positioned at the heart of the Colorado River Basin.
6: And Ute Mountain Ute Tribe Chairman Manuel Hart reminded those listening that. As we look behind me, all the flags that are here, two countries, seven states, and the 10 tribes on the Colorado River There's 20 more tribes that are also within the Colorado River Basin. And two-thirds are still without water rights. Each one of them, sovereign governments working together for a better tomorrow. For KJZZ News, I'm Gabriel Pietarazio reporting from Las Vegas.
0: And now from KJZZ's The Show, preservationists are trying to save a chapel designed by Paolo Soleri. Here's co-host Mark Brody with that story.
8: Soleri is the person behind Santi and its trademark bells. The chapel is at the U of A Cancer Center and has been designated by the Tucson Historic Preservation Foundation, one of the most endangered historic places in Arizona. Diana Nanez with Arizona Luminaria has written about this and joins me now to talk more about it. Good morning, Diana.
7: Good morning.
8: So can you give us a sense of what, what this chapel looks like?
7: Yeah, it's actually quite stunning. Um, and it's not very open to the public anymore. Uh, it's more of a tour. Preservationist, once a year, try to get it opened up and walk people through. You can get in by talking to several layers of building management there at the University of Arizona. But if anybody can imagine this like massive bronze cascade of bells, like almost like a shower. Mm. They hang from the ceiling in this little chapel where... It used to be a cancer center, an outpatient cancer treatment center. So imagine you're in any one of your hospitals, and often there's a chapel for meditation, for prayer, and specifically um, important for people who are facing the disease of cancer. And so this was a place that you could come into and sit in. And Soleri built it after his wife passed, Callie passed away of cancer in uh, 1982. So if you look in, it's this barrel ceiling, long hall. And up above is a sky of desert sage and auburn and light blues and then it rains down into this massive pot and potted desert plant and the sides are kind of like a sand color it's 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 just it's stunning.
8: Well why is the University of Arizona looking to to close this and it sounds like based on your reporting take some of the elements and move them elsewhere?
7: Yes, yeah, so the University of Arizona is planning to dismantle the ceiling and move the bells as well and parse them out. Um, And I asked them why, Um, why, why would they move it? Why, when had this planning started? Um, Were they actually going to parse it out and take it apart? I didn't get any response initially. And then we sent a reporter there to the, to the chapel to see the process of trying to get in and, and, Immediately, they were told by people who work inside, you need a badge to get in now at this university building, hmm. that it had already been taken apart, that it was essentially gone. And so we followed up. I followed up with a question to university officials um, and was told that I do not believe that is the case. So, you know, journalism, miracles of miracles. Our reporter was able to get inside that day, take a look, and they've taken out most of what was inside. They took out this um you imagine when you're in a small chapel, typically at the front, there's some sort of pulpit. Sure. um, And there was a glass pulpit there, a crystal glass pulpit that had been removed. Um, But the solari ceiling and the bells themselves remain intact. And so we didn't get an initial response back. I followed up again the week after we published, let's see, that might have been December 11th, and asked President Robbins and uh, Pam Scott, who is there, Media relations official, and I got what is kind of like a, seems to be a letter that they sent out to everyone who was asking. And they had said that initially when they got a response back for people who were concerned that the university was not following state preservation laws, that they paused and that they then consulted with the Qasanti Foundation, had them come take a look, and they were going to move parts of it. They were going to dismantle. They confirmed that as this letter that they forwarded me. Uh, And move that to the Andrew Weil um, Medical Center building that's being developed, and they were planning on doing that in the new year, and that the bells would move there as well, and that they would be in a more public area, and that the other pieces they would parse back out to the Consati Foundation, and that they would preserve those some other undesignated location.
8: Well, so what are preservationists saying? I mean, it it sounds like on the one hand, yes, they are dismantling this chapel that was designed by Soleri, but on the other hand, maybe some of the key elements of it will will still exist just in different locations.
7: So preservationists are saying that there's two issues here. There's one: the dismantling of one of the few sites in the world where you can see these pieces outside of Cosanti and Arcosanti. Mm -hmm. So they have a very strong case and they've launched a whole campaign and they've relaunched it again since hearing that this is going to happen in the new year, pushing for the university of Arizona to preserve the site intact. So they would even be willing to see it stay there or move in total somewhere else, be rebuilt and kept in pace. Right. The other argument that they have is, is like, Actually, more interesting, and that if this happens, this violates state laws and could set precedents. So, as you've heard, in the years of Arizona, many years now, when people make these arguments, often it's too late, and that's what I heard from from former state lawmakers and uh, Pima County Board of Supervisors Matt Hines. That we hear about this, and it's already happened mm-hmm. because there aren't that many laws when it comes to private buildings, but where we did have some control is as a state legislator as an estate body in our communities that we heard from was with our own state agencies. So state agencies are actually required under Arizona law to review and comment on any plans by a state agency that involves property that is like may even, and it says in there is or may qualify for inclusion on the Arizona Register of Historic Places. So they have kind of like a broader issue that if we let this happen here without a review in our Arizona Historic Preservation Office, then it can happen in other state agencies. Mm. And then they have the argument of, and we want to preserve the Solari Chapel.
8: Well, so as you say, the U of A is looking to maybe get to work on this in the new year. Do you have a sense of what the timeline might be for whatever is going to happen next to happen?
7: Uh, The response, well, I wouldn't call it a response. A forwarded letter that I received just said, quote, early next year.
8: Okay, so could be January, could be March, could maybe not happen if preservationists have their way, it sounds like.
7: That is a really good synopsis of where the status is now. And it's this lead up right before the holiday. The sense I have is that preservationists will come back in the new year when the legislature convenes and really push hard to say, why do we have this law if the state agencies will not follow it? Sure. Use UA as an example, and the Solarie Chapels example.
8: Interesting. All right, that is Diana Nanez with Arizona Luminaria. Diana, nice as always to talk to you. Thank you.
7: Wonderful to talk to you. Have a wonderful week. Okay.
0: And this is the stories you don't want to miss podcast. In education news. A letter that appeared to be from Arizona State University expelling a student for creating adult content caused a stir among users on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter. But as Kirsten Dorman reports, a university spokesperson has confirmed that the letter is fabricated and false.
3: The post containing the letter, along with an image of a young woman posing on what appears to be an ASU campus, has been viewed over 10 million times. An attached community note dubs it an undisclosed ad for an account on the platform OnlyFans. OnlyFans is a subscription platform often used by individuals to post sexual content of themselves. Having an account is not a listed offense in ASU's Student Code of Conduct. The spokesperson added that ASU does not know the young woman's identity and can't confirm if she is a student, but that misrepresenting the university by forging a document would be a violation of the student code of conduct. Kirsten Dorman, KJZZ News, Phoenix.
0: In Fronteras News. U.S. Senators Kirsten Cinema and Mark Kelly say they want more money for Arizona's border communities. That after a sharp rise in the number of asylum seekers presenting themselves to border officers in recent weeks. From our Fronteras desk in Tucson, Elisa Resnick reports. Customs and Border Protection has closed the Lukeville port of entry indefinitely in response, and Governor Katie Hobbs is preparing to send National Guard troops to various parts of the border. In a letter to Homeland Security officials, Kelly and Sinema say the federal government should allocate additional money to the Shelter and Services Program, which is responsible for funding and reimbursing costs incurred by aid groups providing food, shelter, and transportation for migrants released to await court dates in the U.S. The senators say local governments providing these services may no longer be able to early next year without the new funds. They want an update by December 22nd. Alisa Resnick, KJZZ News, Tucson. And finally in science news. Pneumonia ranks among the most common and deadliest hospital-acquired illnesses, killing 20 to 30 percent of those it infects. But a new study suggests better oral hygiene could take a bite out of those numbers. From our Arizona Science Desk, Nicholas Gerbis reports.
4: Despite studies linking oral health to ailments ranging from cardiovascular disease to pregnancy complications, medicine largely treats the mouth and body as separate. Now a new review of 15 studies and almost 2,800 patients finds hospital-acquired pneumonia rates fell among patients randomly given daily toothbrushing, especially those on ventilators. Those patients also got off respirators quicker, left ICUs faster, and were less likely to die in intensive care. Co-author Dr. Michael Klompas of Harvard Medical School says the policy implications are clear.
5: We should be working hard to make routine oral care with toothbrushing part of the normative care for hospitalized patients.
4: The research appears in the journal JAMA Internal Medicine. Nicholas Gerbis, KJZZ News, Phoenix.